Now please take your Bibles with me and turn to Luke chapter 4 as we continue our studies through Luke's gospel. We are today beginning our reading in Luke chapter 4 verse 31 and we will read to the end of the chapter. Uh, This means this is a little bit longer passage than we've looked at in recent weeks and so by some necessity we're going to have to fly it uh, 36,000 feet and get the bird's eye view. Uh, And so we won't dive into every detail, uh, but we'll trust that the Lord will uh, make his word known to us today, uh, even so. You can find that reading on page 860, if you picked up an ESV on the way in. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. Uh, Remember the last time uh, we read, Jesus had been rejected in Nazareth, his own hometown, and now is going to Capernaum. And we'll read about his reception there and how very different in some ways, uh, but how very similar in others. Before we read uh, God's word, please join me again in prayer. O gracious, righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for this, your living word. We pray that by your spirit, you you would give us hearts to hear, uh, to read and to mark inwardly digest that we may behold the word of life, the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Cause us to come and submit ourselves to you and to rejoice in him under your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. One of the wonderful things uh, that the Lord does in the lives of men that he's turning into fathers, one of the gifts that he gives uh, to these uh, newfound fathers and growing fathers is the gift of a commanding presence. It doesn't show up the same way 
in every father. And it might not always be used with wisdom, that's for sure, but it's there. In my household, uh, we refer to that commanding presence as the daddy voice. Uh, it is that tone that is able to stop children in their tracks most of the time. And if you had a father who was, uh, who was diligent in discipline and faithful in discipline, maybe you remember that tone. Maybe you remember the way that your father didn't really have to raise his voice. He didn't have to shout. He didn't have to raise his hand. He just had to raise an eyebrow. You had to use that tone and say your name in just that way. And sometimes that was all that was needed for correction and discipline. And that's part of God's good gift, that commanding presence. It's the gift of authority in the home. And even though, yes, some men abuse that, it's still a good thing. Authority is God's blessing. It's God's blessing to families. It's God's blessing to churches and, and to societies. It helps us to maintain civility, and and it also, authority teaches us how to obey the Lord by learning to obey those authorities that he has established over us. It's not popular, but it's true. And you know it if you look around in various uh, areas of your life. In a thousand different ways, the Lord has established authorities in rightful places. There is the authority of the parent over the child. It's a very different authority between husbands and wives. There's an authority in the church through elders and deacons. Civil magistrates are are God's appointed authorities, his stewards of justice. And even at your job, there's somebody who's the boss, even if it's not you. And so we're aware that there are these authorities in the world. God has established authority. And authority, when it is rightly administered, really teaches us something about the order and the goodness and the dominion of the God who has made us. Rightful authority always reflects something, even even in a broken way through sinful men, it always reflects something of the rule and the dominion of God who is the supreme authority over the creation he has made. And so it ought not to surprise us. And what we find Jesus doing as he ministers to the people and what we find the people acknowledging as soon as Jesus goes out and he preaches and he teaches and he ministers is that the people recognize his authority. It was undeniable. Jesus didn't have to to stand up and claim authority. He didn't have to teach about his authority. He simply had to open his mouth. He simply had to deliver people from afflictions in the world. And everyone marveled, and it was undeniable that this one who is standing in their midst is someone of power and especially of authority. And that authority was teaching the people. It's teaching us. Teaching us about the power of Christ teaching us about the reign of God in the world, what Jesus will call later in this same passage the kingdom of God, God's authority over his creation and his reign that is breaking into the human sphere. Jesus' authority is meant to teach us about God's authority. That's a good thing because the first place that we see Jesus' authority show up in this passage is actually in his teaching. We read in verse 32, Jesus is teaching in Nazareth, and it says they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now, notice that language very clearly. It's telling us two important things about what was happening. It's telling us first that they were amazed at his teaching. That is, they were amazed at what he was saying, the content 
the doctrines that were coming from him. Maybe they were doctrines they've never heard. Maybe he's opening God's word in a new and an exciting way that invigorated the assembly. And they were struck by simply the things that he said, the what he said. But they were also amazed at how he said it. He spoke, and his words possessed authority. On the next few verses, we'll read about humans who are possessed in a different way, that there is some demonic force, some, some uh, dark and, and dastardly presence that is pushing its way to the surface, even through hu- human actions and words. And it's almost the same thing, but flipped with Jesus, that through his human words and his actions, there is a a divine presence, and it cannot be denied, and it, and it filters through, and it presses to the surface like groundwater bubbling up, and, and it's there. And his words possessed authority, and when he spoke, there was a, an authority that captivated everyone there. He spoke with an authority that moved hearts. Not the way your heart is moved when you watch some movie and you get that tingly feeling and isn't it wonderful to see a happy ending. Hearts were, weren't moved by eloquence and by poetic language. Hearts are moved when Jesus speaks the same way that your heart is moved when you open God's word and you find that it actually is living and active. But you have your quiet time in the morning and you're not expecting much and you're still groggy and you're rubbing your eyes and you open that passage and it exposes that sin that you've been struggling with and you haven't told anybody else and it lays you bare and your heart is moved and there's an unmistakable authority to what God says in his word. And it was the same way when Jesus taught. He spoke and hearts were laid bare. He taught and people recognized the authority of this prophet in their midst. In Mark's parallel account, he compares Jesus with uh, the scribes uh, of Jesus' day. And he says in Mark chapter 1 that uh, Jesus taught with authority and not like one of the scribes. Now, there were plenty of teachers, plenty of scribes and Pharisees in the first century in Palestine. But they eschewed authority. They didn't want anything to do with their own authority. In fact, their whole teaching system was built on tradition. And and the better you could quote and cross-reference all the teachers who came before you, well, all the better. In fact, there was a a rabbi in the second century by the name of Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer. uh, And his boast was this, Never in my life have I uttered a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. That was what he founded his ministry upon. And his whole teaching, the fact that he claimed no authority. And they would sit around and they would debate and, well, Rabbi Hillel says this and Gamaliel says this and we're not sure, but here's, here's the debate and they go on and on and on. That's not what Jesus does and he's not interested in simply rehashing what all of his predecessors have given. Jesus stands with authority and he proclaims God's word. He doesn't teach like the scribes. In fact, he doesn't even teach like the prophets. What did the prophets say? Thus saith the Lord. How does Jesus teach? You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you. Anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus teaches with authority. He quotes scripture, he quotes the the Ten Commandments, and then he interprets it as though he had unfettered, complete access to the mind of God, as though he were able to clarify for the people what God had meant all along, as though he were able to teach with complete divine authority. That's how he taught, because that's what he had. 
he was able to clarify the mind of God. He had complete access because he was the God-man, divine and human. And he taught with all the authority of heaven. And he still does. Jesus Christ came into the world to be our priest, yes. He came into the world to be our king, yes, and to reign over us. But he also came into the world to be our prophet. To teach us and to lead us. And even today, even still, he still reveals by his word and by his spirit God's will for our salvation. Is there anything that you want to know about your intersection with the one who has made you? Is there anything you want to know about what life is all about? What you can expect in a life of discipleship? Do you want to know how it is that you can follow Jesus? How you can be useful in his kingdom in every stage of your life? Do you want to know what it is to turn from the entanglements of sin and entrust yourself to Jesus? Then listen to him. That's how we acknowledge and and submit to this authority that Jesus has to teach. We listen to him. We listen to his word. We, we come to him with humble hearts and say, Lord, teach me and lead me. In fact, God calls us to do that. That was uh, the Father's uh, invitation or his command, really, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, verse 35, the Lord says this, uh, with some of the disciples on top of the mountain and the cloud of God's glory enshrouding them, he says simply, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. This is what we do. This is what we need to do because Christ has perfect authority to teach. We ought to listen to him. And so uh, Jesus has this this teaching authority and everyone is amazed, but uh, the way authority normally goes is that it raises opposition. Not everybody likes authority. The same thing happened in Capernaum. While the people were amazed, we read of, of another kind of authority and that's the authority Jesus had to drive out demons. Verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. You have the rest there. I sometimes wonder as a pastor how I would react uh, when, when the unexpected might happen in the congregation. What if, what if somebody had a heart attack? What would we do? How would we react? What if, what if I dropped one of the, the communion trays? Well, this was an interruption I doubt many Presbyterian pastors have ever had to deal with. Everybody is marveling. Jesus is teaching, and suddenly some demon-possessed man stands up in the middle and overshadows everything else that's being said with a loud voice, a mega sound. That's actually what it says, a great voice, a mega sound. And he shouts over everybody else, and he shouts defiance, and he shouts terror because he knows who Jesus is. Do you notice this demon speaks truth? Not with faith, as James tells us. The demons believe and shudder. He doesn't speak it out of faith, but he speaks truth. This is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. He's just been rejected in his own hometown. And they didn't see it. They didn't know who he was, but the demons know. And the demons cry out because they know who he is. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Holy One of God. The one who's come to destroy the works of of the devil, and because Jesus is here, the demons know their days are numbered. Now, I would probably be thrown off uh, if this happened in one of our services. Uh, I'd, let's get rid of that problem, probably. I would be thrown off. I wouldn't know what to do, and I'm not planning on it happen, happening, but Jesus was not plussed. Uh, he, he stood, and he simply commanded silence. 
He didn't let uh, the demon-possessed man take control of the assembly. He didn't have, let him have his way. He simply rebuked him. Notice that word. That's a significant word that's going to show up again. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And what he commands, the demon has to obey. And then that key phrase again in verse 36, and they were all amazed and they said to one another, what is this word? What is this word? Just as he spoke and taught with authority, so also he rebukes with authority. That at his command, at Jesus' word of power, all creation must submit. This is what we're learning at Jesus and his ministry in Capernaum. We're learning the power of Jesus' word, the authority of his rebuke. He commands the dark forces of hell and they flee from his presence and the people have never seen anything like it. Now there were exorcists, so-called exorcists in their day just like there are so-called exorcists in our day. And there were charlatans at that time, and there are charlatans in our time, and there are always charlatans who like to line their pockets with the life savings of the gullible. And there were men then who would make a big show and shout incantations, and then they would pass the plate. And if you like what you've seen here, make sure you support the ministry. Become one of my Patreon supporters. And however you might, you might put it in the social media today, they would, they would get the word out and start a Kickstarter campaign to get their ministry going because they were a powerful person, and they were really just seeking attention. But Jesus isn't seeking attention. Attention came looking for Jesus, and he silenced it. He will not let it speak. And then there's the proof of his authority. And it's laying there in a panting heap in the middle of the synagogue floor. A man who's suddenly been restored to his right mind. As though when a nightmare ends, and he's waking, and he's looking full into the face of his deliverer, and it's undeniable. And everyone who was there saw it, and they witnessed his authority over the demons. There are many today who deny it. There are many today who will look down on those simple, ancient, ignorant people. Those silly people who believed in things like angels and demons and possessed people. But it's right here in your Bibles been inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's been informed by Luke's tireless research as he went back and traced everything back to the beginning. And you can bet that as he spent his years writing his account of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, that he went to Capernaum. He traveled all over with Paul. Certainly he, he stopped because that was a large part of Jesus' ministry. And Capernaum shows up over and over again in the accounts of the Gospels. And so surely he went there and surely he asked somebody who was there just 30 years earlier, what happened that day? And they said, it was amazing. It was unbelievable. There was this interruption, and Jesus, you know, he handled it. And all he had to do was say a word. He spoke a word, and evil fled. He rebuked the spirit, and it obeyed. And Jesus declared freedom, and the captive was released, and it was undeniable. Now, this raises a few questions for us, some of which we might not be able to answer all today. Uh, questions like, are demons still at work in the world? And if they are, uh, do they still possess people the way that uh, we see it happening in the Gospels? And it's presented to us as a very real, true, historical account. So that, does this still happen? And, and when I fall into temptation, when I fall into sin, is it enough to say the devil made me do it, that I was under some compulsion, that I, that I was led by some evil, dark force? And, and if all of these things are true, why are there so few reports of demons in church today? Or at least in the Western church. 
Now, we're, this isn't the last time we're going to encounter demons, and so we're not going to, to deal with all of those questions, and we can't possibly. But suffice it to say that the Scriptures, the New Testament presents demons and demonic activity as very real, uh, but as also very conquered. This is the same thing that we saw several weeks ago uh, with Satan. Uh, but now it's with Satan's minions that there is a continuing conquered reality of demonic forces that the church is engaging with even today. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what Paul says we're battling against. That's why we need the whole armor of God, not a physical uh, clad male armor that would protect us from arrows and guns and swords and, and things like that. But we need a spiritual armor to protect us in a spiritual battle because spiritual forces are very real. That's what the scriptures present to us. Demons are real. They are beings aligned in rebellion against God's holiness and His dominion. And they will use any means possible, anything they can get their hands on, to blind the minds of men and to enslave them. And Scripture presents demons as very real, but it also presents them to us as conquered. It's interesting that when you turn from Luke's gospel into uh, the book of Acts, there are only four accounts of demonic activity at all in the book of Acts. And though Paul mentions uh, demons there in, in Ephesians 6, there are no instructions in any of the epistles about what to do with a church member who suddenly finds himself possessed by a demon. There is almost this, this tapering off, maybe, as we read the New Testament. Not that they're not real, but, but there, is, uh, there is a declining influence. And, and the influence seems to be uh, focused right around Jesus and his ministry. That's what we find almost everywhere that he goes. There's one account earlier in the passage, and then later, demons came out of many, it says. And Jesus was engaging with the people and ministering to them, and there were demons here and, and everywhere. And there seemed to be this concentrated offense during the ministry of Jesus. And, and demons were there, harming children, showing up in legions, oppressing women. They cried out. They made a fuss. They tried to draw unwelcome attention to Jesus. And it's almost as though Satan were launching some sort of concentrated offensive against Jesus in the days of his flesh. But in Capernaum, what we see is that Jesus demonstrates an unchallenged authority over the spiritual world. There's no created being, demons included, Satan included. There's no created being that can withstand his word of power. There is no demonic force that can advance against his kingdom and no unholy presence that can endure where he has declared freedom by his authority. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. And as you read the New Testament, you see that destruction coming in, in three distinct stages. I mentioned just quickly, the first is through his ministry. Peter summarizes Jesus' ministry by saying that he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. He's got this authority. And, and during his earthly ministry, Satan and his minions were bound. They were limited in what they could do. Because his presence was there and his authority was directing everything. And so in his ministry, Satan and his forces are bound. But then in Jesus' atoning sacrifice, the demonic forces have been defeated. Did you hear what we read in Colossians today? 
We read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that at the cross of Calvary, when the debt of our sin was set aside, God was doing something else. He was disarming the rulers and authorities that Paul spoke to the Ephesians about. He was disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. And so demonic forces are bound in Jesus' ministry. They're defeated. They are uh, defeated and put down at, at his sacrifice. And finally, the powers of hell will be judged when Jesus returns in glory at the last day. This is why in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus refers to hell as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the reality. The devil and his angels, his demons, have been bound, and they have been defeated, and they will be judged. And in Capernaum, the devils know the end of the story. That's why they cry out. That's why they make one last offensive push But Jesus has authority to drive out demons, and by his authority, he's teaching us about the power of God. He's giving us a preview of what deliverance and freedom looks like under God's reign. So, so far, we've seen two kinds of authority in Jesus. We've seen authority to teach. We've seen authority to drive out demons with a rebuke. And then there's the authority, beginning in verse 38, of Jesus' healing. Now, by the time you get to verse 38, you're beginning to get a sense for what uh, a typical day in the life of Jesus looked like. Notice that the whole event uh, from verse uh, 32, really, uh, to the end uh, of verse 41 takes place in one day. This is all one thing, that he leaves triumphant from the synagogue where he has uh, triumphed over the power of the devil and his minions, and he goes straight to Simon's house, and he finds his mother-in-law shaking and sweating and bundled in blankets. And Luke tells us, verse 38, uh, that she was ill with a high fever. The word for ill there really is she was gripped, she was seized. That this fever had a hold on her, that this wasn't some uh, trifling little sniffling, sneezing, coughing, aching, stuffy-headed fever kind of medicine uh, from, a, from a magazine ad. This is a real fever on the brink of death. This is the kind of fever that leaves you delirious, that leaves you unable to think or act or speak or do anything for yourself. And so they appeal to the Lord on her behalf, and Jesus stands over her, and he does the same thing he did with the demons. There's that word again. He rebukes it. How does Jesus administer the authority of God in the world? He speaks. He speaks the word of God's power, and creation obeys. Demons and diseases cower at the sound of the voice like rushing waters. It's the same voice that spoke reality into existence, and now it's there in Simon Peter's home, rebuking the fever, setting this woman free. That's actually the word that it says. They appealed to him on her behalf. He rebuked the fever, and it left her. Actually, it released her. She was gripped by the fever, and Jesus rebuked it, and it released her. And notice what she does. Her her recovery is immediate. It's complete. You know how a fever goes. Your fever breaks, and you still spend three days feeling like jello, unable to think about what has to be done. But she gets up, and she gets out the Sunday roast. She begins to serve. And we say, wow, this this is miraculous. This is wonderful. This is really great for her, but this was teaching something. This is teaching something about who Jesus was. Take a look in Luke. Turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 73. 
We'll jump in in the middle of Zechariah's song, but you know that Zechariah is prophesying about this coming one. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He is showing mercy, promise to our fathers, verse 72, and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered, actually released, same word, that we being released from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. What happens when the Lord touches His people and delivers them by His authority? They begin to serve Him. It's meant to show us, yes, that she's doing better. It's meant to show us, yes, that God is is powerful through Jesus, but it's also meant to show us that He's the Christ who was to come. He teaches with authority, and He drives out demons with authority, and he, He heals with authority, and it's undeniable. And that's the way that it happens, that all those who have tasted the goodness of the Savior begin to serve Him. Just like Zechariah said, just like we see with Simon Peter's mother-in-law, that all those who love him begin to serve him and also begin to serve all those who are also his. She serves them, not just Jesus. And one of the surest signs that the Lord is at work in a sinner's heart is that an unbreakable desire to serve those who belong to the Lord. It's the mark by which the world will know us. It's by the love that we have for one another, the way that we serve one another in the love of the Lord. And inside Simon Peter's house, there is service, and there is rejoicing, and there is amazement. And outside, the word is spreading, and by sundown, here come the people. It's also, it's kind of sad, almost. Here come the people, and they're fleeing to him. Why are they fleeing at sundown? Because all day on the Sabbath, the day appointed for the rest, and the restoration of God's people, the Pharisees have said, you have to shelter in place. Not until the Sabbath is over can you seek this one who is able with the word to heal and to deliver. And so at sundown, the people come running, carrying their burdened ones, carrying their sick and loved ones, carrying their tumors and their palsied children, bringing their father who's had leprosy and hasn't had human contact for three years. And they all come to Jesus. They all come pressing in and descending upon Simon Peter's house like fog. And they all found his authority more than sufficient for their bodies and for their ills and for their afflictions. But notice what happens. Not only that we see Jesus' authority to heal, but we see his compassion. Notice that line in verse 40. When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, you you hear those expansive terms, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, they brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. Now that's curious, isn't it? This whole passage has been showing us that what Jesus needs to do to exercise authority is to speak a word. He doesn't have to lift a finger to cast out the demons. He doesn't have to prescribe a bunch of tinctures and ointments to deal with the fever. He simply rebukes it, and it happens. He doesn't need those things, but the people who are coming to him do. And so he lays his hand on them. He comes near to them in compassion, and it's teaching them about what God is like. God is not the one who is aloof, who sits in heaven until we can work our way to him, but God is the great seeker. He's the one who sent his son into the world to lay in the dust of death with sinners, to come and have communion with sinners as he draws them to himself. He's teaching us about what God's rule and authority is like, and he comes near with with power and with compassion, and he delivers these people. He was there with them, healing them and touching them. And it had to have been the most amazing day that this people uh, of this town have ever, had ever experienced. They saw the power of God. 
They heard Jesus' word of authority, and at daybreak, he was gone. We read that in verse 42, when it was day, he departed. Apparently, he worked all night, healing and delivering them, all the people who had come. And then he leaves. He goes away from the crowds where he had done so much good. He goes out into the deserted places. Mark tells us that he goes out to have prayer to the Father. And in verse 42, we read, the people sought him, and they came to him. And if we were to stop reading right there, that is a beautiful summary of what it looks like to recognize Jesus' authority and his power. What happens when you recognize that Jesus is strong to save? Will you seek him? You come to him. You draw near to him. Isn't that what happens when you recognize that Jesus still has the power to heal? Yes, he heals sometimes uh, through doctors, through medicines, through, uh, through uh, therapies and, and things of the like. But sometimes he heals by a word and by a touch. But what do you do when you recognize that God is the great physician, the one who still heals his people? Well, you pray, don't you? You seek him. You do what Simon Peter did. You appeal to the Lord on behalf of your loved ones who are, who are laying in the dust of death, who are having bodies racked with pain. And you seek him and you draw near to him. What do you do when you see the world increasingly in the grip of what seem like demonic forces? And evil men are gaining the upper hand and, and evil regimes take over all over the world. What do you do when you read the news on the, ro- the, uh, the, the week of the anniversary of Roe v. Wade and you see that the New York City skyline is lit up pink because they're celebrating a new demonic law that allows abortion up to the day of, de- of birth? Just so long as some medical practitioner doesn't have to be a doctor, some licensed practitioner of abortion is able to say in good faith that the mother's life or health are in danger. Notice they've separated those. And the question is, how broadly will we interpret that? What is her health? Is, is it her emotional health? Is, I don't know. It remains to be seen, but abortion up to the day of birth. And everybody's celebrating about it. What do you do when you see those things? Well, maybe you write a letter to, to Governor Cuomo. Maybe you stand outside of Planned Parenthood and you pick it. Maybe you raise a, a, a fuss on social media. Maybe you plead with mothers pregnant mothers not to harm their children. But if you know anything about the power and the authority of God, the first thing you do is you get on your knees and you seek him and you come to him. That's what we do when we recognize his power and that's what Jesus tells us to do. Come to me, all those who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me and find rest, he says. And so that's what happens. All those who see Jesus' power will seek him. That's where we start. That's a good thing. But if you know what Jesus is about, you're going to do more than just seeking his help. You're also going to submit to his authority. And that, sadly, is where the people of Capernaum were missing. Keep reading in verse 42. The people sought him, and they came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. You see what they're doing? Do they come to Jesus as though he is the one with authority or as though they are the ones who know what is best? They don't come with their prayers and their supplications. They come with their demands. 
You're going to stay here, Jesus, and you're going to heal our diseases, and you're going to drive out our demons, you're going to teach us how to get along in the world and get along with our spouses and how to live and work and be happy in the world, and it'll be the greatest thing that's ever happened, and we're going to keep you all for ourselves, and we demand that you stay here, and they would have kept him. When Jesus says they haven't gotten it, why had Jesus come into the world? He came in to preach the good news of God's kingdom, to proclaim that he's the authority, that he's the one who rules and reigns over the creation that he's made, and he has come to reveal what life is like under the rule of God, where the Almighty breaks into the human sphere and he drives out everything that does not belong. And so, yes, he's come casting out demons. Yes, he's come healing diseases. He's getting rid of sickness and blindness and crippled bodies, yes, but he's also come to cast out the spirit of rebellion and the spirit of self-will that leads us to think that we can make demands upon God Almighty. He's come to get rid of that, too. And it's good news. Good news of God's kingdom. And they came seeking his power, but they refused to submit to his authority. They came with their diseases and their demands, and they refused to come in humble repentance. In fact, they never came to him in faith. Toward the end, or, or later at least, in Jesus' ministry, he begins to pronounce judgment and woes upon the cities where his ministry was rejected. Now, two weeks ago, we read of Nazareth, where they tried to throw him off a cliff. And so we would think that when Jesus starts to draw out the laundry list of those that are going to have it coming at the end of days, we would think Nazareth would be right on top of the list, but it doesn't show up. But Capernaum does. Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 through 24. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Can you imagine that? A whole city that was wiped out with fire and brimstone because the city itself was so wicked and in blatant rebellion against the Lord. They tried to abuse the angels that he had sent. He wiped them off the face of the earth and he says they would have remained to this day, if we had done the same works, because they would have repented, but Capernaum, it would be worse for you on the day of judgment. Why? Because you may be seeking him, but you're not submitting to him. You may want he, what he can do for you. You're not willing to be called to account, to see what he calls you to give up. Your sin and your guilt and your brokenness, and your failures, to live up to God's standards? What does he call you to give up? But all those things and all those desires that, that intrigue our hearts and draw us away from the Lord. And he said in Capernaum, you're not willing to go that far, to submit to the authority of the Lord and the rule of the kingdom. And there's nothing but judgment for Capernaum. Dear friends, are you submitting to him today? I hope you seek him. I know many of you are. I've had wonderful conversations where I hear about your afflictions and I know of your prayer and I'm so encouraged. And I know many of you are submitting and the Lord calls you to difficult things. 
and he leads you through difficult circumstances, and I know that you are submitting to him. And so I don't mean to end this sermon on a down note. This ought to be encouraging. If you are submitting yourself to the Lord, there is life and health, there is peace, there is joy, there is good news in the kingdom of God. If He is your Lord and your Savior, rejoice in the one who has come. Seek Him all the more, but if you are not submitting to Him, it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day than for you. You who know of His authority, you who have heard His word and His teaching, and yet will not submit. Well, bow the knee today, now. Call upon him in faith if you've never done it before. Turn to him in repentance, the one who came and gave his life for you, a ransom for sinners. And he calls you to come, to seek, and to submit, and to submit to his authority. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Son, your Christ, whom you have given to give his life as a ransom for us, to draw us to yourself. Oh, may he ever teach us and lead us. May he minister to us by his word and spirit. May we always seek you with unfeigned hearts in truth that you would come and minister to us. Oh, Lord, keep us submitting to you and seeking you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. come now to a table which proclaims to us the cost of redemption. Proclaims to us by signs of bread and the cup what Jesus has done. He has given his body and his blood to be broken and to be spilled, to redeem those caught in the grip of sin. And at the cross, the Lord issued his great rebuke over sin and death and hell. And because he has risen, it is forever banished. And though yet we pass through this veil of tears, there is a hope of life and resurrection with the living Lord. This is the promise that we find at this table. But there is life, there is hope, there is forgiveness and redemption and restoration in Jesus Christ. This promise is for all those who are His, who have trusted in Him, made known their faith, professing it publicly before the body of Christians. You don't have to be a part of this congregation, but you ought to be joined to some Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church where the sacraments are administered and, and discipline is administered. If you've trusted in the Lord and professed publicly your faith in Him, come to this table. This promise is yours. The promise is for you. If you've not yet done that, please consider whether the Lord is calling you to do that and to call upon Him to repent and to turn and to believe in Him. We read in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus, as he was eating, took bread, and after he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. O God of mercy and grace, who gave your Son and did not withhold him, but gave him up for us, we thank you as we come to this table that you have called us to, where we will eat and drink by faith on Christ. Use these elements 
set them aside for a holy and a spiritual use in our hearts. Though there is no change in the elements, yet we pray that you would effect a change in us. You draw us more to yourself and set our eyes on the things that are eternal, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, would you do a good work in us? And so keep us by your word and spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.